the conversation of code switching, you know, we talk about it. It's a core piece of the breakline curriculum. We talk about it for all underserved communities. The fact that we feel like imposters and that we have to code switch to make it. Not that we should, but that we have to. There's no other way to do it. And I recognize that that's rooted in a bit culturally in how I was raised. You can talk exactly how you feel in the Spanglish or in the accent that you have or in just the style that you deliver a message for it to land. You use it because that's your strength. And we as a Latino community and as just Breakland alumni and Breakland participant, we need to carry ourselves regardless of where we come from into of those interview rooms and into every single day that we show up to work as ourselves or else we're never going to change that dynamic and we're going to rely on these programs to understand our cultures and our ethnicities without our input. Thank you for joining us in today's episode of the Breakline Arena podcast. I am Sergio. I'm the director of admissions for Breakline. We are excited to have two amazing people with us for today's episode. Today's episode is meant to honor and really celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. We're here to share a little bit more about culture, of our backgrounds, but more specifically about the journey of two amazing leaders in tech. With me today, we got Muriel Payan and Eric Gonzalez. Muriel is over at Google and Eric is now over at Facebook. They both happen to be Breakline alums. We're super excited to have them here. Muriel, Eric, thank you for joining us. How is How are both of you doing today? Good, excited to be here. Life's amazing. If I complain, you shouldn't listen to me. <laughs> I love it. So guys, like I said, so I really, the goal again today is to truly share a little bit more about both of your journeys. So if, if you don't mind, Mira, I'd like to get started with you. Tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and how your journey brought you to tech. Absolutely. So to take a line that I used back in my college applications many, many years ago, I've never been great at describing myself because I'm just so multifaceted, brilliant, and resilient, like panting pro V hair. So it's kind of hard to put me in a box. And I think my journey kind of shows a lot of different, you know, steps, rabbit holes, just a little bit of a roller coaster as life takes you. So uh, taking it a step back, so born and raised in LA, but was always very curious about the world. So went away to college on the East Coast at Harvard. From there, I just took the opportunity to meet people from all over the place, took classes to learn all about different parts of the world. And when I graduated in 2008, it was not the necessarily the best time to be looking for a job. So I had the great opportunity to, to go and work at the American University in Cairo as part of their presidential fellowship program to really just gain experience in another culture while working at the university. But it's a one-year stint. So at that time was 2009 when I completed that opportunity and my manager had recruited me to go to a startup university in Saudi Arabia, the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, where it was a graduate level university focused on just that science technology. So, you know, was excited about the opportunity, excited about working with her again, jumped at it. But after living and working in the Middle East in higher education for a few years, what I found most interesting to me was actually the culture in different countries and how services and products get regulated or changed for tastes and preferences of local cultures and countries. So that led me to transition into a career in marketing. And the easiest way for me to do that was to press the reset button and get my MBA. Came back to the US, went to Wharton. I happened to be on campus when Ford Motor Company came to recruit for the marketing leadership program. Long story short, spent seven and a half years there, rotated throughout different parts of the marketing organization, from parts and service to sales to even working on product development for electric vehicles. And throughout all those different roles, it became apparent to me that digital marketing was increasingly relevant, increasingly important. So I really wanted to expand that skill set. So that led me to explore for other opportunities and really try to look at where I could really develop that skill set in terms of digital marketing and in connectivity. And that led me to Breakline, that led me to Google, and where else really to learn the space than some of the players that are writing the playbook. That's awesome, Miro. Thank you for sharing. I'm lucky enough to have had chatted with you previously. 
I love your story. I love you. Every time you, you recap some of your accomplishments, all of the, the amazing things you've done, it just motivates me and it makes me so happy to hear. Eric, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit more about yourself, your journey, and how you ended up in tech. For sure. First of all, hand clap. That was, I just had the pleasure of hearing an amazing story. That was my first <laughs> time hearing a story, Mariel. And it is amazing to hear a Latina just doing her thing like that. So I'm here for it. Love it. That's motivating. But yes, uh, I am Eric Gonzalez. I was a prior service member, uh, originally from New York City, a Boricua, uh, Puerto Rican from New York, um, but actually ended up transplanting uh, up to Pennsylvania because I spent my younger years trying to be a thug. And my dad's answer to that was, good luck being a thug if we bring you to the mountains. There's no thugs there. And luckily, his parenting skill worked. I taught him a parenting lesson and going right back to New York City for college as soon as I could when I left high school and commissioned out of the Navy there. I went to a merchant mariner school, SUNY Maritime, very small school in the Bronx. Didn't have the opportunity to, didn't have the financial stability, I should say, to really be too jazzed about spending four years paying for school. But luckily, the Navy stepped in and really supported that journey and helped me cross the finish line by way of a scholarship. All purely happenstance happened while I was in college, but found clarity through kind of asking asking myself those questions. So yeah, from there, uh, jumped into the Navy, did na- Navy-like things for the first five years, sailing ships, deploying, and then got into the intelligence community, which is kind of where I sparked uh, my interest in tech. I had the opportunity to work as a cryptologist. I spent the majority of that time working with the National Security Agency, where I got to work on things like information operations, see social media platforms used as weapons during things like the 2016 election. And that just sparked like a curiosity for me that never ended and made me realize how important technology is and how much of a, a, of a piece of a fabric of society that technology now represents. And I wanted to help. I wanted to make it better. I wanted to join a platform that has an impact on the world that I can truly um, support. So that ultimately led to my transition out of the service to jump into tech. Spent an amazing almost a year with a tech startup where I learned a lot that the break line was a major supporter of me getting there and then jumped into a true, true passive of mine, landing at Facebook where I'm supporting their integrity work and protecting their platforms against hateful speech, misinformation, and abusive content at large. Awesome. Eric, thank you for sharing that on, on your end as well. Um, big fan of yours. I think the entire Breakline team is actually a big fan of both of you. Eric, I know also you happen to do, I mean, I know you you were able, you came through Breakline some time ago, you landed your role with Ridgeline, now with Facebook, but you also do a little bit of work on the side with Techeria, is that correct? That's that's right, yeah, Techeria is a very, holds a very big piece of my heart, as I remember as I was preparing the transition, a big part of my identity was being a service member, but a big part of my identity also was being just a Latino, and I I really wanted to find my tribe in that sense in the tech community. And it was as I was going along my journey, I found that community in Techedia. I found it in California that focuses on, on much like Breakline, helping underserved communities, specifically the Latinx community, find opportunities in technology. So along the way of joining the community, I found my way into their trust and safety elements, supporting their platforms across the world and helping folks truly find opportunities and not get kind of spooked or spammed into providing their personal information and what have you that could possibly degrade that platform. So yeah, awesome community, 10,000 strong uh, global community. Couldn't recommend it enough to those Latin minorities in tech. Awesome. Both of you have pretty amazing accomplishments. Let me ask you, and and Mira, I'm going to put this back on you first. Where did you feel that your drive came from? That's funny. I, I, I've been asked this question before, and it's some often hard for me to really pin it down. I mean, I think growing up, so I grew up in a single, a single parent household. My mom, you know, I saw her work really hard. She did her best to make ends meet, take care of me and my brother. So I think a little bit of that work ethic has been instilled in me, though. She's retired now, and I still see her buzzing around with all this energy. I'm like, I don't know how she does it. I think that was one part of it. I think the other part of it was with some on some inexplicable like uh, lens. I it was inculcated me at a young age that the key to success is to go to college. 
no one in my family went to college, but to be successful was to go to college. Beyond that, I didn't know what I was going to do. But also at the same time, when you're 10 years old, you don't really see past the age of 20, right? 30 years is old at that point. So all I knew is I needed to get to college. And the other piece of that was I knew I wanted to go to college far away. I think when I was going through my teen years, in many ways that I didn't want to admit, I was probably a lot like my mom, stubborn, independent, wanted to do things my way. So I also knew I wanted to get out of the house. And the best way to do that was to go to college at 18 and not live at home. (laughs) And it needed to be on the other side of the country because if I was two, three hours away, trust, she would be over all the time. So and I think that's also just part of like Latino, Latina culture. Like as a Latina, you're at home. Why are you going far away from home? Um, that's right. So, I mean, even then I like, I like half joke when I think about it, but there were definitely times where it was, I think a hard pill to swallow for my mom that I was going so far away to school where she, and if I complained about it being cold in Boston at the time or complaining, all oh, the flight is so long. She's like, well, that's what you chose. You could have just gone to Santa Barbara and no knocks. You see Santa Barbara is a fantastic school, but it's only about two or three hours away. So that was not going to happen. <laughs> Um, so I think for me, it was really like, I just wanted more. I just wanted better. And, you know, to some respect, you don't know what you don't know. Like I, I don't think was aware of just the levels of success and wealth that existed in the world. Right. Because I didn't really know that. I didn't see that, but I just knew I wanted more. And I knew that my mom had given up a lot, even though if, when I was younger, I didn't really know what all of that meant. And For me, it was, all right, I'm just going to keep doing my best. And I think once you start seeing some success, it keeps motivating you, right? Like in school, once I started getting the A's and seeing that I was one of the more advanced students in the class, like that just feeds you, right? So I think that's always important to that having that positive feedback will just keep motivating you to want to do more, want to get more. So that just kept me going. Obviously, we can get into the real world like success isn't any one type of definition. So as you grow up, you realize there's a lot of different paths to take and there's no right or wrong way, really. But I think at the at such a young age, for me, there was, and, th- and there really isn't a right and wrong. Like college isn't necessarily for everyone. But for me, that was just like the most structured path that I saw to take and, and get ahead. That's awesome. Uh, Eric, for you, what was one of your biggest drivers and what where do you, or where do you feel that your drive came from yeah much uh much like i think it came from sacrifice from uh, my family i watched them struggle and i remember seeing them struggle even as a child and i know what that meant for them i could i recognized at an early age what stress looks like and saw what it what it feels like and, and saw the late nights that my family put in my parents were both college educated came from nothing dirt poor rose up we didn't have a lot uh, even under those circumstances, they always put in the the effort. And I honestly just, it's a motivator for me to honor their effort through effort of my own, right? It's genetic, you know, they're grinding through by their DNA and, and by their circumstances and, and through the, the, the tough circumstances they had to overcome in their life. I was given a platform and a level ahead uh, because of that. And for me, it's something that I'll pay tribute to, whether I may not have the most money, I may not have the most prestigious career, but I don't need most. I just need to honor them through effort and they'll respect me for that. So it's always been the uh, origin of of my drive is respecting their effort through doing the same. I'm going to interject and I'm going to share a little bit of my own insight because I really do see it as a mix of a lot of what you shared, Muriel, and a lot of what you shared, Eric. So for me, as you guys know, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, lived there my entire life. I left Puerto Rico in 2002. I was 17 when I I graduated high school, right? So I was born and raised. uh, Both of my parents were born and raised in Puerto Rico. I grew up Spanish as my first language. I was lucky enough that similar to you, Eric, my dad was actually, I know Puerto Rican parents, but he grew up in New York City most of his life. And then he came back to Puerto Rico after high school. He went to aviation high school there in New York City. So... I grew up speaking both English and Spanish. Ever since I was four, I'll never forget. My dad handed me uh, one of those like books on tape where you have the book and you have a tape and you're just listening to it. So I've been lucky for me. I've been learning English since I was four and I continue to learn every day. But what I wanted to share was there's two big themes that have happened uh, with both of your stories when you were talking about drive. Muriel, I'll start with you. 
one thing for myself that I saw in a lot of your story is I remember why I wanted to get out of Puerto Rico. Uh, for me, it was opportunity. It, I have been notorious my entire life for not liking authority. I apologize. I'll share that with everybody. I know a lot of people are like, what? But weren't you in the military? Weren't you an officer in the Air Force? Yes, authority and I just don't get along. If you tell me to do something, I'm going to try to do the exact opposite. Don't ask me why. I'm wired really weird. So I remember people telling me my entire life saying, hey, like, actually, you'll never leave Puerto Rico. You're pretty smart, but you'll stay here in Puerto Rico and you'll never leave and go for the state. I applied to one college and that was in Colorado. That was it. I didn't apply anywhere else. I'll never forget. I had an academic advisor that told me you're never going to get into the Air Force Academy. You're from Puerto Rico. Like that'll that's just never going to happen. Statistically, it's just not going to happen. And I said, okay, thanks. I'll do it on my own. And I did it. Again, it took me some time, but I was able to accomplish that. The second part to yours, Muriel, is I remember saying, okay, well, like I'm leaving home because I, I need to get out of the nest, right? Like I'm 17. If it's, if it's going to take me leaving and going to the military and just getting out of home and traveling and just doing my thing without anybody telling me what to do, joke was on me, but without anybody telling me what to do, I'm out of here. Uh, and that's, and that's what I did. But to your point, Eric, I think where, what I loved and identified is I remember growing up, I was lucky and, I, and I'll say it bluntly, I feel that I come from a little bit of a privileged background. I didn't grow up rich. I didn't grow up poor. My mom worked two jobs. I remember seeing my dad at one point working three. It was really historically either my mom was working three jobs or my dad was working three, but they at least had one or two jobs at any one time, all the time. But they did that for me. They did that to give me opportunity, to give me access to education. Um, so similar to what you said, Eric, I know a, a big part of my motivation and my drive, and my mom's actually upstairs because she came to visit from Puerto Rico and she's going to be here for a couple of weeks. It's to honor them, right? And now we're starting to get into the two big things that I want to hit on here through the conversation. One of them is family, which I'm going to ask you guys to share some funny anecdotes of you coming up and, and growing up in a Hispanic household, a Hispanic and Latin household. But it brought me to the point of education. Both of you, I think, have seen the value that education has had in your lives, specifically. Muriel, I'm going to pick on you again because I love one big part about your story, which is, and you shared it very casually, which I'm, I'm proud of you. I know you you don't do it to get any kind of clout or anything like that, but you're a Harvard grad. Like, come on, you're not only a Harvard, but you're a Harvard and Wharton grad. So let's, let's simmer on that for a quick second. But what I wanted you to share is I want you to share a little bit more about your upbringing and what led you to not only applying and being selected to attend Harvard, but how that access to education really had a major playing role in your life from when you were at a very young age. If you don't mind sharing a little bit more about that accomplishment. That's, that's an excellent question. I think for me, at a very young age, because my mom was such an advocate, we didn't have a lot, but she was such an advocate to go to bat for us to make sure that we got all the resources that were available to us. So I was in the magnet program since kindergarten. And sometimes that meant, you know, as I was going through my K through 12 education, my elementary school was entirely magnet. Once I went to middle school and high school, I was in a magnet program in an otherwise overcrowded LA public school. I mean, so I was very aware of a differentiated experience that I was getting versus other of my peers. And I think for me, I saw just how much that was opening doors for me, be it the extra resources we got, the slightly more tenured teachers, sometimes new textbooks, a few more resources for field trips, or just access or awareness to other extracurricular programs. Again, I am a huge advocate for public school because again, I see how good they can be and how important that is because education is like the greatest equalizer. And so for me, that just continued to motivate me to understand that education is key, right? And I think what I didn't realize when I was applying to college, but it came many years later, is that once you hit those higher echelons of schools, it's a lot more than just the education, right? It's the network, it's the brand name. And sometimes the brand name will just do so much more to open doors for you than anything else. And then I think just, as I mentioned before, just wanting to continue to be the best, right? Like the, the small successes that feed you to want to have more successes. I think 
I, I, I was just like always aiming high. And obviously I think what I wanted or what I thought was possible truly evolved over the years. What was really helpful for me in realizing at some point that Harvard was within reach was I was very good friends with other, you know, other uh, students that were a year ahead of me in high school. And I saw some of the schools they were applying to and some of the schools that they got into. I'm like, huh, well, my profile is not too different from theirs. You know, I think I have a chance. Plus, I'm all about shooting your shot. Let them tell me no. I'm not going to tell me no. <laughs> because this was, you know, like this is one of the rare times I'm not going to be applying. I'm not going to, I'm only going to get one undergraduate degree, right? I'm not going to be going to college again and again and again. So I, I, sh I you know, I shot my shot, I guess, past tense of that. <laughs> and I applied to all, I applied to 19 schools in total, right? I applied to a few UCs. I applied to all, most of the Ivies. I applied to schools, big, small, middle of nowhere, big city, because they all had some, something interesting or appealing about them. But ultimately, you know, I, and I told myself, you know, I'm not going to go to the place with the brand name. I'm going to go to the place that was most interesting to me. And that being said, I probably gave in a little bit to the brand name, but I did have a fantastic time when I did visit Harvard. Um, and fun fact, you know, a lot of schools that you get into, if you don't have the resources, um, they oftentimes, especially private schools, people are wary of private schools because they think I can't afford that. I'm like, you know what? Oftentimes private schools have more resources to give you than public schools. So that is something to keep in mind. Number one. Number two, when it's, you know, admit time and they have all their visiting weekends, you know, oftentimes, sometimes you just have to ask again, closed mouths don't get fed. So I expressed, I was really excited to apply to uh, apply to those schools, visit the schools, potentially attend those schools, but I didn't have the resources to visit. And a lot of schools have resources to fly out low-income students to, to visit them and make, you know, in, in, in helping them make that decision. So when I went to Harvard, I was welcomed by an amazing group of people who would be my friends till this day. And they were upperclassmen in the Latino community, particularly from Los Angeles. So it was easy to connect. And I would say on, on many other levels, just that regional connection was probably more than us just being all Latinos. I mean, it helps, but that's, I would say being from California has also shaped a lot of who I am. So, I mean, that's, again, very long way to answer your question, and I hope I answered it, but it's, it's really just shown me how education really is a great equalizer, and I think being in a magnet program at a young age and seeing the benefits of, of that enhanced education and enhanced resources just continue to shape how I, how I continue to pursue education and sought out the best opportunities I, that I could. I, I, I could not agree with you more, Muriel, and we'll, we'll get into a little bit more about this. Eric, one thing I wanted to ask you, kind of along a similar note, kind of looking at your background, right? You had a chance of going to school and then eventually serving. You served in a very unique career field. I'm curious to hear, and I'm looking at the education from two different angles for you, not only but your professional education and some of those schools that you attended, not only for your undergrad and your master's, but I'm eager to hear a little bit more about your training and education from your time in the Navy and how you felt that had an impact in your career and now directly connected to your career in tech. Without a doubt, I think the single most valuable thing that I learned in the Navy was how to learn and how to learn under pressure without time, without resources, um, and without a clear outcome. Like having to make decisions when the stakes are very high. I'll tell you, it was fascinating. And I recognize this now as I talk with, you know, younger developers that, you know, are, are, are fresh out of college that at, at that point in my life, I was driving a ship uh, with 2000 people's lives in my hands and, and learning and getting yelled at and, and running on low sleep, you know, doing that at the age of 22 and recognizing, you know, now we're lobbying for, all right, where's my standup desk or where's my, uh, <laughs> my computer's broken. You know, those are some of the decisions that you know, or, or, or some of the, the crises, I should say, that we deal with. And that's no slight on anyone whatsoever. It just really, when I transitioned into technology, it made me value those kind of decisions that I had to make and duress that forced me to grow up, learn things, process information really quickly, assemble a group very, very fast, and do it with like little to no resources or with, with a very limited just operating budget. It just, it really just taught me how to learn. I love it. Eric, I want to pick on you again because I have a disconnected to a, a point that I wanted to talk to you about. Emiro, I'm going to come back to you on this. 
but both of you are Breakline alums, so you've gone through the Breakline program. I don't know if you both of you remember to case study one, and it may have been a little bit different for you, Eric, but we talk about, we use some fictitious scenarios and a lot of the training that we do with Breakline where we really are just changing the names, but are things that happen in real life. Um, and this connects back to you showing up as your true authentic self. And Eric, with you specifically, when you were going through Breakline, we were lucky enough that we had a very pretty funny or comical situation that happened that, and, and by the way, I apologize if I'm paraphrasing it. I want you to tell the story. But in essence, what happened was, at least I'll share from the case study, you know, we use a fictitious, a fictitious name of a character named Dion who is applying for a role. They are on-site interviewing. And, you know, when you're on-site and you're interviewing, you're minding everything you say, you're minding your P's and Q's. You want to make sure that everything that comes out of your mouth is perfect every single time. And the recruiter asked Dion what he did for fun, like as a hobby. It was a little bit more of a social setting. And Dion was at a crossroads of sharing, okay, do I tell this person what I really do for fun? Or should I just tell them that I like to read or just something very, that's going to make me sound very book smart. So I know this is you, Eric, and we use Dion as the name, but I want you to, if you don't mind, I, I want to hear a little bit more about that story and see if you'd be able to share that with your audience and how it connects to you being your true authentic self. Yeah, without a doubt. First and foremost, shout out to Ridgeline. The process of interviewing was just incredible and amazing. I feel like I made friends just through the interview process, but I remember so vividly. Everyone along the way was like, not really warning me, but just pointing out, hey, everyone here is going to be great. There's going to be one person, though, that's a little pushy that may make you feel kind of slightly uncomfortable. It's like he's just stoic. It's no slight against you. It's his demeanor. He's like that with his wife and kids. That's just him. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's, that's fine. But, you know, as you go through the day, he was my last interviewer. So I'm going through the day. I'm only getting more friendlier with the, the group of folks that I'm interviewing with. And now it's like a party. And the last interview comes and I have to, like, reorient myself. So I remember, like, oh, man, like, this is the guy. I've got to really, like, I've got to, I've got to lock it up here. So sure enough, he fits the bill. He's very stoic in nature, very matter of fact. And I appreciated his approach. And I prepared for it somewhat. But then he asked me one question that I really wasn't prepared for, uh, to answer. I mean, it's a simple question. He kind of puts my resume down on the call. He looks at me. He's like, all right, Eric, what can I learn about you that is not on this um, piece of paper? That's not on this resume. Like, tell me something that I can't uh, learn uh, from this resume. And I remember I just like, I panicked for a second. And I'm like, oh, God what is the smartest thing I can say right now? I wonder what's going to make me look hyper-intelligent. And I look at him and I go, I read books. <laughs> and he just kind of looks at me like, all right, okay. Uh, thanks, Eric. Uh, appreciate your time. And the, the Zoom call ends. Then it's back to party time. I hop back on with another interviewer who was just checking on me, wanted to see if I survived the phone call with him. And he's like, oh, man. So he asked everybody this one question. What can they learn about? What can he teach them about themselves that is not on their resume? What would you say? I was like, oh, well, one, thanks. I wish I would have known that. But two, I told him I read books. And he's like, oh, did you tell him you DJ? I'm like, no. He's like, well, he's DJed all of his life. He had a career DJing before uh, he came here. You should have told him that. And I had, like, my DJ equipment right behind me on the Zoom call, too. So clearly he saw it. I think he was open to making a connection and i just remember the hardest head slap like oh of course <laughs> and then we laughed about it luckily afterwards and we talked about it almost every day but i just remember in that moment like really reflecting on it after the fact like why was i so afraid to be myself like what was it about that moment that i couldn't say all right let me let me give him all of eric that's Eric. Thank you for sharing that. I think everybody on the Breakline team absolutely loves that story because it's hilarious and it's definitely a head slapper. And that's why we actually like to use that that example because it just shows you where even in the most unexpected times, how truly when we think we want to impress and it really being your true authentic self at all times is just so important. Muriel, I wanted to ask you because I can tell you have a lot of these little to situations throughout your life where you've always been your true authentic self. I want, I want you to think back and share, you know, share a little bit more about a time where you were your true authentic self, but from the context of 
something that has just stuck with you throughout your life that is part of your upbringing where you were put in a position that maybe you weren't um, necessarily ready to be your true authentic self and you said, hey, screw it. Like, this is me. This is what you get. Uh, I'm eager to hear a little bit more through your lens if possible, Miriam. I think one of the things that shaped me to this day is that growing up, my mom is just, she, again, did a lot to provide for us, but I was always raised in terms of to not go without, right? We always had extra of everything in the house. Maybe it's because my mom jokes that, oh, we're in America now. We're rich. We're not real. You know what I mean? But like compared to, she, she emigrated from Nicaragua and it's, you know, she's coming from a very, very modest background. So I think she just dives into, I wouldn't say hoarding, but we're always prepared. We have everything we need, any type of machine, extra of the extra. Like, let me tell you last year, COVID pandemic, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, at home with my mom, but neither one of our households needed toilet paper. All right. We were good. We were set. We are Costco lifetime members, evangelists, really. So that is one of the things that my close friends to this day, they all know, like, if people need a suggestion, I'm going to put out Costco. Oh, you need anything? Buy in bulk. It's more value. And these types of types of things come up in conversation on a day-to-day basis with friends, coworkers, so it's the running joke that I, if, if you need anything, like Muriel's got it. If we travel, oh, like here Muriel comes with all of her suitcases, but who do they come to? Because they forgot bug spray. They don't have sunscreen. Oh, they need an extra bag. I got it. So they joke that I'm always going around with a tote bag, but I have everything you would need and I have extra and I'm happy to share. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm there, right? To take care of people because I have plenty and I'm not going to be stuck without. So I would say that I have learned I think there's been points where I might have been slightly embarrassed. I can't necessarily pinpoint to a point in time where where I was reluctant to. But I will say there's a story from college where for many years, Harvard did not have a 24-hour library on campus. They only had one for limited time during finals period. But it was a big deal when I was an upperclassman. They, and they made one of their undergraduate libraries uh, 24 hours. So to celebrate at midnight, they're going to have burritos from the local burrito spot and dessert from the fancy dessert place, like out for free. You're a college student, free food, you're all about it. There is a photograph in the school newspaper where I'm up front with a tote bag and I'm getting burritos and whatnot and all of that. And they call it the Lamont dessert, right? Cause it's the Lamont library. And I actually did have, I got quite a few. And then I found some of the freshmen that were probably only on campus for a couple months, if that, and gave out some burritos, some drinks, some dessert. And from then they all know like, oh, there's Muriel. She has her tote bag. What do you have? And what do you have to share? So that's, I would say slightly embarrassing, but it's kind of on brand net for me now between Tupperware tote bags and having a Costco like house full of stuff. <laughs> That's awesome, Miro. I'll tell you, uh, you're not the only one that uh, where that is necessarily the case. Trust me, in my in my family, I-, I love that you shared that they're not hoarders. Let's do some air quotes there. They're just very, very, very prepared in anticipation for a lot of little things. Um, I love that the concept of family has come up a few times during the conversation. I think that's one thing that's definitely unique. I wanted to share one quick story in regards to kind of what we're talking about today, right? Like being your true authentic self, because it's something that really stuck out with me. So again, like I shared earlier, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. I left the Air Force in 2014. So I've actually been out of the service for coming up on seven years, but one of most one of my most transformative roles is one that I actually was able to do uh, some HR and people ops when I was working for hotels. I was working for an amazing property, big hotel in Napa, California, and I actually got to do my job in English and Spanish. At the time, I was a recruiting manager. I was doing recruiting heavy for hospitality. When I'm saying heavy, I mean I was personally recruiting about 250 people per year by myself. I was a recruiting manager, so I was the recruiter. I did it all. But I got to do it in two languages. I got to do it in English and Spanish. And I remember being at an event and speaking with some of the associates in Spanish. Again, I mentioned I'm from Puerto Rico. Islander Spanish is just so much different than traditional Spanish or the Spanish that 
uh, Miro, you probably grew up speaking, or you, Eric, in your family, um, where Islander Spanish is the, the R's or L's. It's very slangy. It, it's very, very different. So I was actually trying to speak proper Spanish to a lot of my associates, and we had associates from Mexico, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras, everywhere. And I remember them telling me, he's like, why are you speaking that way? And I said, what do you mean? I'm speaking Spanish. And they kept to me, so like, no, you're trying to speak like normal Spanish. You're from Puerto Rico, right? I was like, yeah. They're like, speak, speak Spanish to us how you would speak Spanish to your own people. And I'll never forget that because that stuck out to me just in such a unique way of, hey, like, be your true authentic self, right? In my mind, I was trying to speak the Spanish that I thought they wanted to hear, wanted to understand. They're like, no, man, like. We know plenty of people from Puerto Rico. Like, you speak Spanish how you speak Spanish. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to interject there with a little bit of personal anecdote about being your true authentic self. Like I mentioned earlier, that the topic of family has come up a few times. The topic of access to opportunity and education has come up a few times. I wanted to ask both of you as we kind of start wrapping up the conversation. And Meryl, if you don't mind, I'll start with you here. Um Tell me a fun little fact about you and your family that nobody else would know or that the, the, the listeners to this podcast would not know that you think it's either unique or funny and hilarious or just flat out weird. I actually want to, want to share I, – I want folks to get a little bit more in-depth about some of the cultural – little cultural nuances and things. It could be something as simple of, hey, like I grew up eating this and all my friends tell me this is kind of weird. Or, hey, like, I grew up doing this one thing where I grew up playing the sport or hobby. It could be as simple or as complex as you want, but I'm eager to hear a little bit more about the intricacies of your upbringing and your cultural upbringing and see what you'd be open to sharing there. Sure. So one thing that's funny or very, I think, pervasive throughout the, you know, Latinx, Latino community, however you, you know, describe, or describe yourself or identify, is the concept of Spanglish, right? And it's interesting to me how different people, organizations, entities in the world take on this concept of Spanglish. You know, Latina Magazine sticks out because I remember picking it up one day at the salon and, you know, they kind of integrate some, uh, this was like 15 years ago where they, you know, integrate some Spanglish. But what I quickly realized is that there's like no one definition of Spanglish, right? There's, I think every household, every unit, every different, you know, pair of people have their own concept of Spanglish. Growing up, my Spanglish was... Or I, let me put it this way, like now as I'm older, I find that my Spanglish interactions with my mom, it's my, I'm more English heavy and she's more Spanish heavy in her responses to me. But we completely communicate, you know, in ways that this manifests its way in like day-to-day life is growing up, we, like my, again, family's Nicaraguan, so we're not Mexican, but we would have tortilla con cheese in the house. That's a normal quick snack, right? You take a tortilla, you put some mozzarella cheese, usually maybe just a straight like string cheese. You fold it, put it in the microwave. You have tortilla con cheese. Good snack. Good, quick, yummy snack. And for me, it never really, I never really thought anything of it. Like this is what we're just communicating. You don't really give it a second thought. You open your mouth, words come out. You don't really think about it twice until I remember fast forward many years and it really took a handful of times over 10 years for this to really resonate. I remember my friends in college would overhear my conversations. They're like, did you really just speak in two languages? I'm like, yeah, I guess. I didn't think about it. Or one time when I moved to Phoenix, my mom came to visit and helped me move in. And we were at Home Depot looking at options for I don't know what in the bathroom. And we're just having a conversation. And I think another Mexican-American guy like passes by. He's like, and speaks is like, did you, are you guys really flu- like fluidly just speaking in two languages and, you know, interchanging things? I'm like, yeah, I guess. Didn't really think about that. So I think that's one of the things that I think a lot of people can relate to. But it's just funny because I just never really thought twice about it until many years later when people start pointing it out. <laughs> that's awesome, Muriel. I, I appreciate you sharing. I'll highlight this quickly because uh, Spanglish is my language. That's what I do. But I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, it drives my wife crazy when family visits because I'm doing the Spanglish all the time. And whenever family's visiting, I will turn to her and I'll do the same thing. She doesn't speak any Spanish. So she's like, Sergio, you're speaking to me in Spanish again. And I'm like, babe, I am so sorry. This is what I meant to say. So <laughs> thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Uh, Eric, Let me. I'll ask you the same thing. I, I want you to kind of share something, again, funny, unique, just very culturally 
awesome about you and your upbringing. Tell us a little bit more, if you don't mind. For sure. So growing up, my father was the cook in our house, but because he was working so much, he only cooked on Sunday. So every Sunday, Monday to Saturday, we're kind of eating you know, quick foods. But on Sundays, we would always have something and he, that he would put an effort to, a big kind of uh, meal that would leave our bellies full. Arroz con gandule, benin, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Pork, pork shoulder, rice and, and, and beans, like typical hearty Puerto Rican food. So every Sunday was like always an amazing day. I grew up on that religiously Sunday after Sunday for 18 years. Going back to college, I'm going back to school in the Bronx. Uh, now, for those who don't know, in New York City, specifically in the borough of the Bronx, there are probably just as many Puerto Ricans there as there are on the island of Puerto Rico, <laughs> if not more. So me, me leaving Pennsylvania, going back to New York, going to the Bronx, I'm like, I'm great. I'll be eating. I mean, Sundays may be, be even better uh, down there. So I get to the food hall on my college campus the very first day. And I walk up, I'm looking around, I see some potatoes, I see some corn, I see some like roast of some sort. And I asked the cafeteria gentleman, I was like, excuse me, sir, can you point me to where the rice and beans are? He's like, oh, I'm sorry, we're not serving that tonight. And I genuinely look at him, and I'm 18 years old already, like at this point, I look at him and I say, but I always have rice and beans. <laughs> And he looks at me and he's like, oh, man, you might struggle in this life, buddy. That's not how life works. So I call my parents uh, and I, call, I get on the phone with my dad. And I'm like, dad, they don't have rice and beans in this cafeteria. And it was the first phone call where my dad's like, oh, boy. He's like, eh, yeah, uh, all right, I'll, I'll talk to you later. You can handle this one on your own. <laughs> and just hung up on me. And I'll never forget from that moment on that, yeah, all right, like food and music are like uh, truly important to our culture. But I, the fact, so much so that I didn't even think twice about it. I just hes didn't hesitate and looked for it on the cafeteria line. That's awesome. And made a fool of myself. That is awesome, Eric. Thank you for sharing that. W one semi-related story that that reminded me of when going to college and just like language and food was, again, growing up, like, to be clear, when I said my family's from Nicaragua, that's because we had tortillas con cheese and not quesadilla. So it was also go growing up through life and in the Spanglish and, you know, not really formally learning Spanish in school was when I went away to college, I was active on the Latino groups on campus. And I remember helping to plan some event and we I was trying to get food. So I'm calling around bakeries in Boston asking for, you know, a tres leches cake. And I'm asking for Gekke de tres leches. Like, oh, do you have Gekke de tres leches? And nobody had it. I was like, oh, what's weird? This is really weird. Why do these Boston bakeries don't have Gekke de tres leches? Well, what I found was, oh, it's Nicaraguan Spanish where for cake, we say Gekke. And nobody told me, it wasn't until years later where I realized, oh no, Gekke is a Nicara Nicaraguan way of saying cake. And then fast forward, I find out learning from my, like I had to go through life learning oh, like wait what's Nicaraguan Spanish versus you know more mainstream Spanish and then I had to learn from cousins oh no that's not Nicaraguan Spanish that's just stuff your mom says okay good to know <laughs> and even it's just been a continual evolution of like what's proper Spanish that I hear at home versus the more academically professional sounding Spanish vocabulary that I should be using with people I'm unfamiliar with. So that's also been a little bit of a learning curve. Maria, uh, don't get me going on that. Uh, one thing, and, and I've shared this with a few people, but um, I, I remember hitting the official time in my life where, again, I grew up speaking Spanish my entire life. I spoke Spanish 24-7. And then I remember getting to college and officially hitting the point where my mind started thinking in English. And then I'm speaking in Spanish when I speak, so it's different. Where before I'm taking everything in English, thinking about it in Spanish and then processing it back out in English where when that flip happened and I'll never forget, you know, when I was 17, one of the biggest things was I used to say, okay, you know, when, when I was actually in basic training, they're like, you know, sir, can I go, uh, I, this is embarrassing, but I'll share it. I said, Hey, sir, can I go wash my mouth? Like wash my mouth. They're like, do you mean brush your teeth? And I was like, yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That, that, that's what I meant. Cause in Spanish is a, hey, like my way out of la boca, meaning, I go brush my teeth, but I translated it word for word from Spanish to English. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to go wash my mouth, which is super weird that I hear it again. But my point is I could share a couple dozen moments of weird ones like that, Muriel. Uh, but again, I, I'm lucky and blessed to say that I, I do remember the point clearly where I started thinking in English and, uh, and having to translate to Spanish 
which by the way, similar to you right now, again, I grew up speaking Spanish, but my mom and I, it's all Spanglish. She understands me. She's not an English speaker, but she understands me, thankfully, because my Spanish has gotten terrible since I don't speak it almost every single day. Eric, Muriel, it's been an absolute pleasure having you both. Eric, as we wrap up, I wanted to ask you and Muriel both this question. So it's a little bit of a two-parter. Feel free to answer it however you'd like. But the question I really had for you was, do you have any words of wisdom or insights you want to share with the Breakline community as we close out our celebration on Hispanic Heritage, uh, Hispanic Heritage Month? Or um, if, if maybe if there is someone from the Latinx and Hispanic community um, who's inspired you that our listeners should learn more about. Yeah. The conversation of code switching, you know, we talk about it. We talked, it's a core piece of the breakline curriculum. We talk about it for all underserved communities. The fact that we feel like imposters and that we have to code switch to make it not that we should, but that we have to, there's no other way to do it. And I recognize that that's rooted in a bit culturally in how I was raised. I'll never forget a moment where my father's on the phone, he's on his work phone, we're out um, somewhere, and I believe we're like at a theme park or something, and, you know, speaking Spanish, going wild, talking crap, you know, as as we all do, his, his work phone rings, and all of a sudden, hello, this is Thomas Gonzalez, and I like, I remember I look at him, and I'm like, I don't know that man, hey, my dad, like, who is that on the phone? And my dad looks at me, and he goes, son, this is how you have to speak if you're going to make it in this world. And he genuinely meant it. Like he genuinely meant that comment. And it's something that sticks with me till this day. And I've had this conversation with about, about this with him after the fact. And that I would, he's given me the opportunity to now teach my kids the opposite. And he doesn't even recognize it. That you never have to do that. You can talk exactly how you feel in the Spanglish or in the accent that you have or in just the style that you deliver a message for it to land, you use it because that's your strength. And we, as a Latino community, and as just Breakland alumni and Breakland participant, we need to carry ourselves, regardless of where we come from, into uh, those interview rooms and into every single day that we show up to work as ourselves, or else we're never going to change that dynamic and we're going to rely on these programs to understand our cultures and our ethnicities without our input. And the last and the last thing that I'll add, I really love Spanish art. I love Salvador Dali. For those who don't know him, the best way to, to describe him is he's kind of the Kanye West of Spain. He just kind of in his era in the 1900s, he just he just didn't care. He was so rooted in his identity and chasing his passions through his very unique surrealism style art that it just didn't fit. He was a square peg trying to fit into a circle hole and just broke the board jamming his way through and then just threw the board in the garbage. And I learned a lot by just looking at his art, looking at his style, looking at how he lived his life. He was just a he was proud of his culture. He was confident in his abilities and he was he was proud of himself. And, you know, that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways, especially in the Latino and you know, Latinx community. And, and we are very prideful people. We're people of passion. And that is not something that I believe and that I've learned through my own personal journey that you leave at the door, whether you're interviewing or whether you're going to work, you bring that with you because you, you don't know who can gain value from how you talk, how you believe in yourself, how you think, regardless of your experience level, regardless of your education, regardless of your background, you know, celebrate yourself, celebrate your culture if that's what's important to you, because it's just as valuable as any technical skill you could ever bring, if not more valuable, because you, it's infectious. Like you don't know who you can inspire, you, who you can inspire by just simply loving yourself and believing in yourself. And I always learned that through his art. That's awesome, Eric. I love that. Miro, the question's to you. I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase it here briefly, but the question was, um, any words of wisdom you want to share with us as we close up the celebration for Hispanic Heritage Month? Or if there's a specific person, per se, that you look up to and that you'd like to share with our community. Sure. So one of the things that I think has resonated with me over the years in many different ways is that representation matters. 
And I was recently tuning into the Ad Color Conference this week, and a lot of the conversations around DEI came up, including the phrase came up in one of the discussions that you can't be what you can't see. And I would say one of the most form, the people that I've looked up to over the years isn't Latina per se, but since I was a kid, I grew up on I Love Lucy and Lucille Ball has always resonated with me. In fourth grade, I bought her autobiography and read it. And I think one of the reasons that that TV show made such an impact on me, besides it being classic and timeless in so many of the issues that they explored was she was married to Desi Arnaz and their on-screen um you know, life was just that, right? I, I could relate. There was Spanglish going on in the household, you know, <laughs> with, with, uh, with Ricky, with Ricky Ricardo's character. So I think that was very familiar to me. So I saw that representation, right? You know, years later, John Liquizamo had House of Buggin' on TV. And for me, it was normal. I, 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 but it wasn't, and it was funny, but it wasn't until years later that I realized, oh, like I was able to, re- it, it resonated with me because, I saw familiar cultural themes, but Lucille Ball in particular, after reading her autobiography, I understood that she was a pioneer, as many of us are still today, especially in fields like tech, right? There might not be many of us. We're pushing the glass ceilings. She ended up being one of the first, she ended up being the first female head of a studio in Hollywood, right? She pushed the boundaries of having a, you know, biracial marriage relationship on TV, first pregnant woman on TV, like a lot of these concepts were pushing the boundaries many, many years ago. And I think that was very inspiring to me, including some of the kind of Me Too incidences that she experienced all those years ago and never compromised on her morals to get ahead. So a lot of that, I think I've seen in role models around me to this day and why I looked up, look up to that and just understanding that the struggle continues representation matters but you, we just got to keep going and don't compromise muriel thank you for sharing eric muriel both of you I, from the bottom of my heart i wanted to thank the both of you for your time today you're both a big part of the breakline community you are breakline success stories you are amazing people and more importantly you're extremely influential hispanic and latinx members of the tech community I truly thank you for your time today. Thank you for being so open, for sharing your story. For those of you that listened today, thank you so much. Thank you, Kenny, for helping putting this episode together. This is something that is near and dear to my heart. For those of you that are big fans of the Breakline Arena podcast, I'd highly encourage you when we're talking about those influential folks within tech. I wanted to share Manny Medina's story. We happen to have a separate episode on Manny Medina. He's the CEO of Outreach. Uh, so if you're curious and you're listening to the podcast, check out Manny Medina, Grit Growth and Scaling Outreach uh, to hear a little bit more about his story. Again, Eric Muriel, thank you so much. We truly appreciate y'all today.